Section 125. Introduction. Joseph Smith's father died September the 14th, 1840, as a result of his affliction suffered during his escape from Missouri. Just before his death, he called his family around him and gave each one of them a blessing. Joseph's blessing included the promise that he would be allowed to live until he had completed his mission. This was a great relief to Joseph, since he had been on the verge of being killed over and over again in recent months. Of course, by the time Joseph received this promise, he had settled in Nauvoo, and a substantial number of saints had gathered there. But many had also gathered across the river in Iowa. By January of 1841, Joseph had received a whole series of revelations in section 124. And a few weeks later, he wondered whether to gather the saints in Nauvoo to help perform the new labors the Lord was requesting, or should he encourage them to settle in a variety of stakes in Iowa, where so many saints were already assembling. In March of 1841, Joseph decided to take this problem to the Lord. Here is the text of section 125. What is the will of the Lord concerning the saints in the territory of Iowa? In this verse, Joseph presents the problem which is troubling him. Verily thus saith the Lord, I say unto you, If those who call themselves by my name, and are essaying to be my saints, if they will do my will and keep my commandments concerning them, let them gather themselves together unto the places which I shall appoint unto them by my servant Joseph, and build up cities unto my name, that they may be prepared for that which is in store for a time to come. The Lord has this advice concerning those who are striving to qualify as saints. The Lord says they are to gather in the various communities which Joseph will be inspired to set up as future stakes of the church, and they are to firmly resolve that they will obey the commandments of the Lord exactly as he has revealed them. And then finally they are to build up these communities so they will be prepared to cope with the great events which are soon to come. Let them build up a city unto my name upon the land opposite the city of Nauvoo, and let the name of Zarahemla be named upon it. One of the stakes should be built across the river from Nauvoo, and it was to be called Zarahemla. This community was built about a mile west of the Mississippi shoreline, and near a small community called Montrose. It was directly across from Nauvoo. And let all those who come from the east and the west and the north and the south that have desires to dwell therein take up their inheritances in the same, as well as in the city of Nashville or in the city of Nauvoo and in all the stakes which I have appointed, saith the Lord. It is obvious that the Lord wanted the saints from both America and Europe to settle in these new states. The Lord specifically mentions the community of Nashville, along with other centers Joseph will designate. Nashville was pleasantly located on the Mississippi River above the Des Moines Rapids. Other towns on the Iowa side were Ambrosia, Augusta, and Keokuk. There were many who favored settling in a federal territory rather than a state. 
in the hopes that the federal government would respect the civil rights of the saints better than some of the states had done. Section 126, Introduction This short section is about Brigham Young. Brigham Young met Joseph for the first time on November the 8th, 1832, even though he had been investigating the church ever since the fall of 1831 and was actually baptized April the 14th, 1832. It was a great thrill for Brigham Young when he met Joseph for the first time at Kirtland, Ohio, and concerning this visit he said, quote, When I went to Kirtland to meet the prophet, I had not a coat in the world, neither had I a shoe to my feet, and I had to borrow a pair of pants and a pair of boots, unquote. This is quoted by B. H. Roberts from the Comprehensive History of the Church, Volume 1, page 289. During this first visit, Joseph Smith asked Brigham Young to pray, and Brigham did so in the Adamic tongue. He had enjoyed this gift for some time in Pennsylvania, but it was the first time Joseph Smith had ever heard the gift of tongues. Nevertheless, Joseph received the interpretation of tongues at the same time, and he understood everything Brigham had said. This is in the History of the Church, Volume 1, page 297. Later, when Brigham was absent, Joseph told his associates that one day Brigham Young would lead the church. And that's found in The Kingdom of God Restored by Grant, page 163. The moving significance of this short revelation can only be appreciated in the light of the following facts. Joseph Smith had barely escaped from Kirtland and set up his headquarters in far west Missouri, when the Lord announced that the twelve apostles were to go on a mission to England. The Lord said they were to meet at the temple site in Far West on April the 26th, 1839, and depart for their mission to England from that place as soon as circumstances would permit. Of course, by April the 26th, 1839, Governor Boggs' extermination order was in full operation and it had made a ghost town out of Far West. The entire church was in process of being driven out of Missouri. In fact, the Missouri mobs and members of the state militia had sworn that the revelation, predicting that the apostles would convene at the temple site and therefore leave there on April 26th for their British mission would never come to pass, they swore that if the apostles attempted to fulfill this revelation, they would be shot. But the obvious havoc among the fleeing saints must have lulled the mob militia into complacency temporarily because on April 26, 1839, a conference of the apostles and some of the members of the church was actually held at Far West, and 30 apostates were excommunicated. The apostles were convened at the temple site. They sang a hymn. They laid the southeast cornerstone for the temple. They ordained George Albert Smith and Wilford Woodruff, who had been previously approved as apostles. And then each of the apostles said a prayer. They then sang the hymn, Adam on Diamon, and took their departure for Illinois to try and provide the means for their mission to England. These were momentous times. Of course, because of their poverty-stricken condition, the apostles could not immediately raise the fare for their journey. 
They therefore struggled to get their family settled in Nauvoo and then prepared to go with what little money they had to preach the gospel in England without purser script. But a ferocious malaria attack struck practically the entire quorum, and many of the saints were also struck down in both Nauvoo and those living on the west bank of the Mississippi. Joseph got up from his own sickbed and administered to several who were thought to be dying, and after healing them, he proceeded to raise up vast numbers of stricken saints. On July the 2nd, 1839, the prophet called the twelve together and said they must depart immediately for their mission to England in accordance with the Lord's instructions in sections 118 verses 4 and 5. They finally gained the means to sail from New York March the 18th, 1840, and arrived in Liverpool, England on April the 6th. The mission of the Twelve to England was a fantastic success. The new apostle Wilfred Rudolph recorded in his journal as follows, quote, The first thirty days after my arrival in Herefordshire, I had baptized forty-five preachers and one hundred and sixty members of the United Brethren, who put into my hands one chapel and forty-five houses, which were licensed according to law to preach in. This opened a wide field for labor and enabled me to bring into the church, through the blessings of God, over 1,800 souls during eight months, including all of the 600 united brethren except one person. In this number, there were also 200 preachers of various denominations, unquote. And this is in the kingdom of God restored by Brother Grant pages 261 to 262. Apostle Orson Hyde departed from the brethren in accordance with the blessing given to him by Joseph Smith. He left his brethren in England on April 1st, 1841 to make a perilous journey to Jerusalem where he climbed up Mount of Olives and dedicated that land on October the 24th, 1841 for the return of the Jews. Meanwhile, Brigham Young and the rest of the Twelve set sail for New York on the 20th of April, 1841. When Brigham Young arrived in Nauvoo, he was heartily welcomed by Joseph. Here was Brigham Young's report, quote, Through the mercy of God we have gained many friends, established a church in almost every noted town and city in Great Britain, baptized between seven and 8,000 souls, printed 5,000 books of Mormon, 3,000 hymn books, 2,500 volumes of the Millennial Star, and 50,000 tracts, unquote. This is in the study of the Doctrine and Covenants by Brother Ludlow, Volume 1, page 636. A week after returning to Nauvoo, Brigham Young was a guest at the home of Joseph Smith, and there on July the 9th, 1841, Joseph received the following brief revelation addressed to Brigham Young. Dear and well-beloved brother, Brigham Young, Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, My servant Brigham, It is no more required at your hand to leave your family as in times past, for your offering is acceptable to me. I have seen your labor and toil in journeyings for my name. After verse 1, 
It said he would not be required to travel abroad any longer. He would now be able to spend more time with his family and tend to their needs. And finally, his sacrifice and missionary efforts are fully acceptable to the Lord. I therefore command you to send my word abroad and take a special care of your family from this time, henceforth and forever. Amen. Brigham is to spend his time at the headquarters of the church where he can take care of his family. He can perform his apostolic duties by sending written communications of instructions to the saints. It is obvious that the Lord now wants this faithful, dedicated servant to stay close to Joseph and support him in ministering to the affairs of the church. Section 127, Introduction While the missionaries in England were rejoicing over their success in welcoming several thousand new converts into the church, the Prophet Joseph was bitterly disappointed with the treatment he was receiving in Washington, D.C. In section 123, the Lord had commanded the saints to gather the facts together concerning the suffering of the saints in Missouri and present it to the president of the Congress. Even earlier, Sidney Rigdon was given this assignment at the conference in May 1839, but he did nothing about it. At the October conference, Joseph had joined the saints at Commerce or Nauvoo, so he and Judge Elias were assigned to accompany Sidney in finally fulfilling this assignment. As the party was nearing Washington, the driver of the stagecoach stopped to get a drink of grog. Something frightened the horses, and they took off at full speed. A woman became so frightened she was trying to save her baby by throwing him out of the coach. Joseph quieted her feelings and then opened the door of the coach and succeeded in climbing up to the driver's seat. He then brought the horses to a stop. A congressman who was riding in the coach was so impressed by Joseph's skill that he planned to commend Joseph to the Congress when it was in session. However, when he found out who Joseph was, the matter was never mentioned again. Joseph went to the White House, but President Martin Van Buren was reluctant to meet with Joseph. When he did, the president rather impatiently listened to the prophet as Joseph plainly narrated without exaggeration the terrible experiences the saints had endured in Missouri. When he had finished, the president shrugged it all off by simply saying, quote, Your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you, unquote. He said that if he tried to intervene for the saints, he would lose the vote of Missouri. And this is in the kingdom of God restored by Grant on page 266. Joseph had brought with him a detailed petition from the saints for the members of Congress. It was assigned to the Judiciary Committee of the Senate, but it went nowhere. The committee disposed of this pitiful plea from 10,000 American refugees by pontifically proclaiming that the only constitutional remedy for the Mormons was to go to the courts of Missouri. Of course, this was ridiculous, and so Joseph returned home. The only advantage Joseph gained by this experience in Washington 
was observing the president, the senators, the congressmen, other leaders of the nation, and discovered that God had endowed him with attributes which compared favorably with any of these so-called great men in Washington. He returned to Nauvoo with more confidence than when he left. However, the saints were brokenhearted when they learned that the leaders of Washington would do nothing to help them. Nevertheless, Governor Boggs was jubilant. He immediately petitioned the governor of Illinois to extradite Joseph Smith back to Missouri as a fugitive from justice. Legally, the governor of Illinois had no obligation to ship Joseph back to Missouri unless he was certain that the governor of Missouri would give Joseph Smith a fair trial. The governor of Illinois had been very cordial when the saints first came to Illinois, but the action of the authorities in Washington appeared to have whetted his appetite for political ambition. Therefore, to Joseph's amazing alarm, the governor of Illinois granted the petition of extradition. This meant that a sheriff from Missouri could come up to Nauvoo and arrest Joseph Smith on sight and haul him back to Missouri. Therefore, Joseph's only protection was to stay out of sight until the Missouri sheriff became discouraged and returned home. Section 127 is Joseph Smith's epistle to the saints, explaining why he will be out of sight for a while, but he gave them a little gospel meat to nourish them during his absence. The date of this epistle was September the 1st, 1842. And here is the text for section 127. Forasmuch as the Lord has revealed unto me that my enemies, both in Missouri and this state, were again in the pursuit of me, and inasmuch as they pursue me without a cause, and have not the least shadow or coloring of justice, or right on their side in the getting up of their prosecutions against me. And inasmuch as their pretensions are all founded in falsehood of the blackest dye, I have thought it expedient and wisdom in me to leave the place for a short season for my own safety and the safety of this people. I would say to all those with whom I have business, that I have left my affairs with agents and clerks who will transact all business in a prompt and proper manner, and will see that all my debts are cancelled in due time by turning out property or otherwise as the case may require, or as the circumstances may admit of. When I learn that the storm is fully blown over, then I will return to you again. This is Joseph's explanation that he will be gone for a while, but he is leaving his affairs in the hands of certain designated agents until, quote, the storm has fully blown over, unquote, and then he will return to the saints again. And as for the perils which I am called to pass through, they seem but a small thing to me, as the envy and wrath of man have been my common lot all the days of my life. And for what cause it seems mysterious, unless I was ordained from before the foundation of the world for some good end, or bad, as you may choose to call it, judge ye for yourselves. God knoweth all these things, whether it be good or bad, but nevertheless, 
deep water is what I am wont to swim in. It all has become a second nature to me, and I feel like Paul, to glory in tribulation, for to this day has the God of my fathers delivered me out of them all, and will deliver me from henceforth. For behold, and lo, I shall triumph over all my enemies, for the Lord God hath spoken it. This verse reveals the strength of character and valiant integrity of Joseph Smith's great spirit. When you think what he had endured in Missouri and how he was treated in Washington, it is amazing to have him say in this epistle, quote, I feel like Paul to glory in tribulation, unquote. Let all the saints rejoice, therefore, and be exceedingly glad, for Israel's God is their God, and he will mete out a just recompense of reward upon the heads of all their oppressors. This verse is Joseph's great testimony together with his motto for victory, quote, Be exceedingly glad, unquote. And again, verily, thus saith the Lord, let the work of my temple and all the works which I have appointed unto you be continued on and not cease, and let your diligence and your perseverance and patience and your works be redoubled, and you shall in no wise lose your reward, saith the Lord of hosts. And if they persecute you, so persecuted they the prophets and righteous men that were before you. For all this... There is a reward in heaven. Now Joseph raises the most important subject on his mind at this time. It is so important that they finish the temple so they can receive the wonderful ordinances reserved for that sacred building. The enemies of the church are determined that this sacred building shall never be completed. Therefore, the persecution of the saints in Nauvoo has been accelerating. And again... I give unto you a word in relation to the baptism for your dead. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you concerning your dead. When any of you are baptized for your dead, let there be a recorder, and let him be eyewitness of your baptisms, let him hear with his ears, that he may testify of a truth, saith the Lord. Joseph says the baptisms for the dead must be witnessed and recorded, by someone who was present and can testify that the ordinance was properly performed. This is a very significant verse. Joseph Smith had first mentioned baptism for the dead at the funeral of Seymour Brunson, who died August the 10th, 1840. This is referred to in History of the Church, Volume 4, page 179. At this funeral, Joseph explained Paul's reference to baptisms for the dead and said the members of the church could be baptized on behalf of their dead ancestors who never had an opportunity to hear the gospel. Within a few weeks, the church members began being baptized for their dead relatives. These ordinances were performed in the Mississippi River, and this continued until shortly before the baptismal font was dedicated in the Nauvoo Temple. During the two years that river baptisms were performed, a total of 6,618 vicarious baptisms were performed and recorded in accordance with this verse. 
And this is according to M. Guy Bishop in his article, What Has Become of Our Father's Baptisms for the Dead at Nauvoo? And that appeared in the Dialogue magazine, number 23 for the summer of 1990, page 36. That in all your recordings it may be recorded in heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth may be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth may be loosed in heaven. We note that verse 5 is the first formal instruction of the Lord concerning these various ordinances. The Lord says they will be recorded in heaven just as we record them here on earth. Obviously, then, they should be most carefully and accurately written. For I am about to restore many things to the earth pertaining to the priesthood, saith the Lord of hosts. Now this is the first formal instruction the saints have received concerning the temple ordinances. The Lord says he is going to restore many things pertaining to the priesthood as time goes on. And again, let all the records be had in order, that they may be put in the archives of my holy temple, to be held in remembrance from generation to generation, saith the Lord of hosts. The Lord wants these sacred records to be carefully filled in proper order so they can become part of the permanent archives of the church. I will say to all the saints that I desired with exceedingly great desire to have addressed them from the stand on the subject of baptism for the dead on the following Sabbath. But inasmuch as it is out of my power to do so, I will write the word of the Lord from time to time on that subject and send it to you by mail, as well as many other things. Joseph said there were a number of things he wanted to tell the saints about the work for the dead and had planned to do so the following Sabbath. But the sheriff from Missouri anticipated his appearance at the church and therefore that prevented Joseph from attending. I now close my letter for the present for the want of more time, for the enemy is on the alert, and as the Saviour said, The prince of this world cometh, but he hath nothing in me. Joseph says he must close this epistle because the prince of this world, meaning the sheriff from Missouri, is coming. Behold, my prayer to God is that you all may be saved, and I subscribe myself your servant in the Lord, prophet and seer of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Joseph Smith. Joseph says his constant prayer unto God is that the members of the church will be saved. That requires obedience to God's commandments and enduring to the end. Section 128, Introduction Five days after Joseph wrote his epistle to the saints in section 127, he wrote to them again. It is in this epistle that Joseph makes his first reference to the organization of the congregations of the church and towards. These elements of church structure have an interesting history. Moses was instructed to organize ancient Israel according to God's inspired plan, and this plan is described in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Moses was told to divide the people by families into tens, fifties, and hundreds. A hundred families constituted a ward. 
meaning a watched-over place, according to Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible, under quote, ward, unquote. It is interesting that during the Kirtland period, as well as the days of Zion and Missouri, there were congregations, but no organization of families called wards. However, in the winter of 1841, Joseph divided Nauvoo into ten districts to facilitate the raising of money for the cost of the temple and setting up work teams to actually build the temple. On August 20, 1842, the First Presidency had the High Council organize each of these temple districts into wards. And these were the first wards in the history of the church. And this is described by Kenneth W. Godfrey in The Importance of the Temple in the Nauvoo Experience, pages 12 and 13. Joseph knew as early as 1840 that the saints would be expected to build a temple in Nauvoo. Several of the early brethren mention in their writings that Joseph had actually seen the temple in vision, and he had William Weeks draw up the plans based on what the prophet had seen. Kenneth W. Godfrey also describes this in his book, pages 11 and 12. The church voted on October 6, 1840, to build a temple as the Lord had commanded. On February 18, 1841, the saints began excavating the basement of the temple, and on April 6, they dedicated the four cornerstones. On November the 8th, 1841, seven months after the temple cornerstones had been laid, and 36 days after baptisms for the dead in the Mississippi River had been discontinued, Brigham Young dedicated the baptismal font designed for the basement of the Nauvoo Temple. The font was built during the summer and fall of 1841. It was a temporary wooden tank, 16 feet by 12 and 4 feet deep. It was constructed of narrow strips of grooved pine boards. The font rested on the backs of 12 life-sized oxen, the model for which was the most handsome ox in Hancock County. Elijah Fordham and his assistants carved the ox out of pine planks which had been glued together. This is described in The Kingdom of God Restored by Grant, pages 274 to 275. Just a couple of weeks after the font was dedicated, the first baptisms for the dead were performed. On November the 21st, 1841, Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and John Taylor baptized 40 saints for their dead on that occasion. So five days after Joseph sent out his first epistle comprising section 127, he had an opportunity to write a much more extensive discourse which became this present section 128. It is dated September the 6th, 1842. As I stated to you in my letter before I left my place, that I would write to you from time to time and give you information in relation to many subjects, I now resume the subject of the baptism for the dead, as that subject seems to occupy my mind. And press itself upon my feelings the strongest since I have been pursued by my enemies. Joseph was haunted by the possibility that he might be killed before he had administered all of the ordinances and principles of the gospel to the saints. They knew about baptism for the dead, but only six of the apostles knew about the temple endowment. 
These apostles had received their endowments on May the 4th, 1842, in an improvised setting above Joseph Smith's store. This was necessary since the temple was less than half finished. We will talk about the endowment in the next section, but the weight of Joseph's concern in section 128 is understanding the scope of vicarious work for the dead. I wrote a few words of revelation to you concerning a recorder. I have had a few additional views in relation to this matter, which I now certify. That is, it was declared in my former letter that there should be a recorder who should be eyewitness and also to hear with his ears, that he might make a record of a truth before the Lord. In the previous section 127, Joseph emphasized the need for a recorder to witness the ordinances and make an accurate record for the church archives. Now, in relation to this matter, it would be very difficult for one recorder to be present at all times and to do all the business. To obviate this difficulty, there can be a recorder appointed in each ward of the city who is well qualified for taking accurate minutes. And let him be very particular and precise in taking the whole proceedings, certifying in his record that he saw with his eyes and heard with his ears giving the date and names and so forth, and the history of the whole transaction, naming also some three individuals that are present, if there be any present who can at any time, when called upon, certify to the same, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Now Joseph makes reference to the existence of the new wards in Nauvoo. He says there must be an official recorder in each of these wards. The recorder will issue a certificate to the person having these ordinances performed, but certify the names of at least three individuals who were present and can testify as witnesses who saw the ordinance performed. These are usually the officiating officers of the ward. Then let there be a general recorder to whom these other records can be handed, being attended with certificates over their own signatures, certifying that the record they have made is true. Then the general church recorder can enter the record on the general church book, with the certificates and all the attending witnesses, with his own statement that he verily believes the above statement and records to be true, from his knowledge of the general character and appointment of those men by the church. And when this is done on the general church book, the record shall be just as holy, and shall answer the ordinance just the same, as if he had seen with his eyes and heard with his ears, and made a record of the same on the general church book. This verse describes the setting up of the archives of the church under a general recorder. There must not only be a recorder for the ward, but the same information must be sent into the general recorder in charge of the records of the whole church. You may think this order of things to be very particular, but let me tell you that it is only to answer the will of God by conforming to the ordinance and preparation that the Lord ordained and prepared before the foundation of the world for the salvation of the dead who should die without a knowledge of the gospel. The Lord anticipates that some might complain because the record must be maintained with such immaculate care. 
However, the eternal salvation of those who died without a knowledge of the gospel depends upon these records certifying that their proxy ordinances have been performed. It was planned this way even from before the foundation of the world. And further, I want you to remember that John the Revelator was contemplating this very subject in relation to the dead when he declared, as you will find recorded in Revelation 20th chapter 12th verse, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. This is what John the Revelator was talking about when he said the dead would be judged according to that which was written in the books. You will discover in this quotation that the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. But the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Consequently, the books spoken of must be the books which contain the record of their works, and refer to the records which are kept on the earth. And the book which was the book of life is the record which is kept in heaven the principle agreeing precisely with the doctrine which is commanded you in the Revelation, contained in the letter which I wrote to you previous to my leaving my place, that in all your recordings it may be recorded in heaven. These records on earth must be immaculate because they determine exactly what is recorded in heaven. Now, the nature of this ordinance consists in the power of the priesthood by the revelation of Jesus Christ, wherein it is granted that whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Or in other words, taking a different view of the translation, whatsoever you record on earth shall be recorded in heaven, and whatsoever you do not record on earth shall not be recorded in heaven. For out of the books shall your dead be judged according to their own works, whether they themselves have attended to the ordinances in their own propia persona, or by the means of their own agents, according to the ordinance which God has prepared for their salvation from before the foundation of the world, according to the records which they have kept concerning their dead. The power of the priesthood is to seal on earth that which will be sealed in heaven. Therefore, what the priesthood has not recorded as sealed on earth is not sealed in heaven. It may seem to some to be a very bold doctrine that we talk of, a power which records or binds on earth and binds in heaven. Nevertheless, in all ages of the world, whenever the Lord has given a dispensation of the priesthood to any man by actual revelation, or any set of men, this power has always been given. Hence, whatsoever those men did in authority in the name of the Lord, and did it truly and faithfully, and kept a proper and faithful record of the same, it became a law on earth and in heaven, and could not be annulled according to the decrees of the great Jehovah. This is a faithful saying. Who can hear it? Here is a marvelous doctrine that God has set up his priesthood in each dispensation to record on earth that which is intended to be fully operative and recorded in heaven. And again, for the precedent, Matthew 
16th chapter, 18th, 19th verses. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here is the scriptural authority for this doctrine which Jesus personally pronounced upon Peter. Now the great and grand secret of the whole matter and the summum bonum of the whole subject that is lying before us consists in obtaining the powers of the holy priesthood. For him to whom these keys are given, there is no difficulty in obtaining a knowledge of facts in relation to the salvation of the children of men both as well for the dead as for the living. The grand secret of priesthood government is having the power to seal on earth those things which are essential for salvation and exaltation in heaven. Herein is glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, the ordinance of baptism by water, to be immersed therein in order to answer to the likeness of the dead, that one principle might accord with the other. To be immersed in the water and come forth out of the water is in the likeness of the resurrection of the dead, in coming forth out of their graves. Hence, this ordinance was instituted to form a relationship with the ordinance of baptism for the dead, being in likeness of the dead. Consequently, the baptismal font was instituted as a similitude of the grave, and was commanded to be in a place underneath where the living are wont to assemble, to show forth the living and the dead, and that all things may have their likeness, and that they may accord one with another, that which is earthly conforming to that which is heavenly, as Paul hath declared, 1 Corinthians 15th chapter, 46th, 47th, and 48th verses. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as are the records on the earth in relation to your dead, which are truly made out, so also are the records in heaven. This, therefore, is the sealing and binding power, and in one sense of the word, the keys of the kingdom, which consist in the key of knowledge. Baptism by immersion and then coming forth from the water is symbolic of coming up from the grave in the resurrection. Now Joseph joins with Paul in emphasizing that without our dead we cannot be made perfect in the sight of God. And now, my dearly beloved brethren and sisters, let me assure you that these are principles in relation to the dead and the living that cannot be lightly passed over as pertaining to our salvation. For their salvation is necessary and essential to our salvation, as Paul says concerning the fathers, that they without us cannot be made perfect, neither can we without our dead be made perfect. 
The prophet then gives us a quotation from Paul. So the saints will know that the vicarious works for the dead were familiar to the members of the church in the days of the ancient apostles. And now in relation to the baptism for the dead. I will give you another quotation of Paul, 1 Corinthians 15th chapter 29th verse. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Joseph also wanted the modern saints to know that the ancient prophets knew we would be mindful of those who went before us and perform the work for those who died without having a chance to receive the gospel. And again, in connection with this quotation, I will give you a quotation from one of the prophets who had his eye fixed on the restoration of the priesthood, the glories to be revealed in the last days, and in an especial manner this most glorious of all subjects belonging to the everlasting gospel, namely, the baptism for the dead. For Malachi says, last chapter, verses 5th and 6th, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This verse emphasizes that if the work for the dead were not performed, a great curse could descend like a dark shroud over the earth. I might have rendered a plainer translation to this, but it is sufficiently plain to suit my purpose as it stands. It is sufficient to know in this case that the earth will be smitten with a curse unless there is a welding link of some kind or other between the fathers and the children upon some subject or other. And behold, what is that subject? It is the baptism for the dead. For we without them cannot be made perfect, neither can they without us be made perfect. Neither can they nor we be made perfect without those who have died in the gospel also. For it is necessary in the ushering in of the dispensation of the fullness of times, which dispensation is now beginning to usher in, that a whole and complete and perfect union and welding together of dispensations and keys and powers and glories should take place and be revealed from the days of Adam even to the present time. And not only this, but those things which never have been revealed from the foundation of the world, but have been kept hid from the wise and prudent, shall be revealed unto babes and sucklings, in this the dispensation of the fullness of times. The Father intends to join the human family together in one vast chain of relationships, extending clear back to Adam. Now, what do we hear in the gospel which we have received? a voice of gladness, a voice of mercy from heaven, and a voice of truth out of the earth, glad tidings for the dead, a voice of gladness for the living and the dead, glad tidings of great joy. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that bring glad tidings of good things, and that say unto Zion, Behold, thy God reigneth, as the dews of Carmel so shall the knowledge of God descend upon them. 
This is an acclamation of triumphant joy that the fullness of the gospel is being restored. And again, what do we hear? Glad tidings from Camorra. Moroni, an angel from heaven, declaring the fulfillment of the prophets, the book to be revealed. A voice of the Lord in the wilderness of Fayette, Seneca County, declaring the three witnesses to bear record of the book. The voice of Michael on the banks of the Susquehanna, detecting the devil when he appeared as an angel of light. The voice of Peter, James, and John in the wilderness between Harmony, Susquehanna County, and Colesville, Broome County on the Susquehanna River, declaring themselves as possessing the keys of the kingdom and of the dispensation of the fullness of times. Here's a fantastic revelation. Joseph had to be visited by Father Adam or Michael to tell him that what he thought was an angel of God was actually Satan trying to deceive him as an angel of light. And again, the voice of God in the chamber of old Father Whitmer in Fayette, Seneca County, and at sundry times and in divers places, through all the travels and tribulations of this Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the voice of Michael the Archangel, the voice of Gabriel and of Raphael and of divers angels from Michael or Adam down to the present time, all declaring their dispensation, their rights, their keys, their honors, their majesty and glory, and the power of their priesthood, giving line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, giving us consolation by holding forth that which is to come, confirming our hope. In connection with the restoration of the gospel, there had to be a continuous array of ministering angels. Now Joseph wants to challenge the saints. He says, Brethren, Shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward and not backward. Courage, brethren, and on, on to the victory. Let your hearts rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Let the earth break forth into singing. Let the dead speak forth anthems of eternal praise to the King Emmanuel, who hath ordained before the world was that which would enable us to redeem them out of their prison, for the prisoners shall go free. Those who never heard the gospel in this life or who rejected it find themselves imprisoned in the spirit world and must wait until the gospel is taught to them and the necessary ordinances performed by proxy so they can be released from their prison and receive an assignment in the Lord's work. Let the mountains shout for joy, and all ye valleys cry aloud, and all ye seas and dry lands tell the wonders of your eternal King. And ye rivers and brooks and rills flow down with gladness. Let the woods and all the trees of the field praise the Lord, and ye solid rocks weep for joy, and let the sun, moon, and the morning stars sing together, and let all the sons of God shout for joy, 
and let the eternal creations declare his name forever and ever. And again I say, how glorious is the voice we hear from heaven, proclaiming in our ears glory and salvation and honor and immortality and eternal life, kingdoms, principalities, and powers. This is an inspired and ecstatic expression of joyful appreciation. It is capitulated in the phrase, quote, Let all the sons of God shout for joy, unquote. Behold, the great day of the Lord is at hand, and who can abide the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Let us, therefore, as a church and a people, and as Latter-day Saints, offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness, And let us present in his holy temple, when it is finished, a book containing the records of our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptation. The building of the temple in Jerusalem and the offering of sacrifices in righteousness by the sons of Levi will mark the end of the Aaronic priesthood as a separate branch of authority. John the Baptist made reference to this when he restored the Aaronic priesthood. He said this priesthood of Aaron should never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. And that's Doctrine and Covenants section 13, verse 1. Joseph is anxious that the Nauvoo Temple, when it is finished, will assemble wonderful records of all those for whom vicarious ordinances have been performed. Brethren, I have many things to say to you on the subject, but shall now close for the present and continue the subject another time. I am, as ever, your humble servant and never-deviating friend, Joseph Smith. Joseph anticipates that while he continues in hiding, he will be sending forth another epistle to further explain some of the principles of the gospel which need to be discussed. If you liked this podcast and would like more materials by W. Cleon Skousen, you can find his other books and recordings at skousenlibrary.com or at your local LDS bookstore.